Now, even though skills is clearly one of the five pursuits and is there, they somehow have this notion that um, if you focus on, you have to either focus on identity, criticality, joy, or skills. You cannot have it all. Now, I tell people, well, they did it all in the 1800s. Why can't we do it all today? Um, So that's one misconception. Um, Another misconception is that the model is just for black children or brown children. We start to believe that when something is derived from blackness, that is only for black children. And no one ever asked people like Lucy Calkins and uh, Nell Duke and other people who have made curriculum and framework, Vygotsky, Piaget, no one said, oh, this is only for white children. The zone of proximal development, even though he did not include any kind of research or history around blackness or black education. But for some reason, people have this misconception that this idea of these five pursuits around my model is only for black children. Of course, white children need and deserve, brown children need and deserve identity, skills, intellect, criticality, and joy too. An absolute honor, pleasure, and joy to open up season two of the We See You Teacher podcast with the accomplished Dr. Goldie Muhammad. Dr. Muhammad, at her core, is a teacher, having served as a middle school teacher, literacy specialist, and school district administrator, and school board president. In this episode of the We See You Teacher podcast, we dive into Dr. Muhammad's framework, the historically responsive literacy framework, which Dr. Muhammad has described as a universal teaching and learning model that helps teachers cultivate the genius within students and within themselves and teach in ways that create spaces for mutual empowerment, confidence, and self-reliance. We find out the framework's impetus and impact on educational communities. Here, Dr. Muhammad personalized the aspects of the model centered around the five pursuits of identity, skills, criticality, intellect, and joy which are explored deeply in her best-selling book, Cultivating Genius, an equity model for culturally and historically responsive literacy. The winner of numerous prestigious awards, and as down to earth as they come, I present to you The Work, featuring Dr. Goldie Muhammad on Season 2, Episode 11 of the We See You Teacher podcast. I am humbled, grateful, and honored to have um, the intelligent, illustrious, introspective, incomparable um, Dr. Goldie Muhammad here with me today. Um, I use those verbs very intentionally um, as her biography spans across so many different experiences and disciplines throughout the field of education. Um, as a classroom teacher, a literacy specialist, um, school district administrator, and also a curriculum director and school board president. Now in her current role as Associate Professor of Literacy, Language, and Culture at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So uh, again, a big, humble, and heartfelt thank you for being on the show. Uh, Thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled to be here, to be with you, to be able to talk about all this stuff that's happening in education. Um, So thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to start with origins. Um, And as a language teacher, I know you would appreciate this, but uh, the origin of your name, uh, it's such a beautiful name, um, Goldeneskar. 
Um, and uh, you've shortened it to Goldie, which is also beautiful. But um, I just wanted to know, what is the origin of your name? Where does that come from? Well, it is a Persian name. Uh, and it's a different pronunciation is a very popular Persian name, Gonexa. And Golnisar, my mother changed the spelling a little bit. My mother's black, my father's Persian. And she added an R because she felt like it needs to sound like Golnisar. And uh, my father and mother named me, but again, my father is Persian and it's a Persian name. And the Gol in Golnisar means um, like garden or flowers. And Nassar means more like sharing. So sharing flowers, sharing gardens, I guess you can define it that way. And somehow, uh, I think when I was in elementary school, um, my uncle started calling me Goldie because I had really curly hair like Goldilocks and he thought it was a cute nickname. And it kind of just stuck over the time. And um, so people affectionately know me, know me as Goldie, but you know, I also have a few family members who still keep Golnisar <laughs> when they refer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's that's such a beautiful origin story. And um, yeah. I start with that intentionally because in keeping with the theme of origins um, in today's classroom dynamic, uh, especially, you know, with our with re- in relation to our youth, um, I I really feel our origin story in terms of African peoples, African-American peoples, um, of course, has been uh, systematically erased um, from an intentional sense. Um, I feel like um, in our blood, we have this um, deep history of uh, mathematics and sciences and um, even literary literary, um, perspective. Um, So pretty much, I think every great invention or any great literary work has derived from the continent of Africa. So whenever I think of, um, you know, the, the background and, and, and just the deep history of uh, uh, black excellence, I think of that movie, great debaters on how there was such a certain pride um, that we had in, in education. Um, So I would ask you um, in the sense of thinking about pride in our heritage and in pride in um, where we come from in terms of that deep history of intelligence and genius. Um, where do you think that has gone and what, what do you think happened to us? Wow. That's a great and powerful question. Um, you know, it's still with, it's still in us. It's still within us. It's still within our spaces. Um, sometimes it goes unrecognized and hidden a bit by certain folks who just don't want to see it or can't see it or whatever. Um, But, you know, we have such a rich lineage. Like you said, everything comes from the continent. I mean, it's like the, the heart and soul of the world. You can even name it. And there's a lot of innovation and brilliance and resources. And I think sometimes we can say that sometimes it's been erased Sometimes it's been stolen or taken from us. Sometimes it's been covered up. Um, Sometimes, like in the United States, there's a lot of genius moments in history from our schools, from literary societies to the ways we organize that sort of just um, dissolved. Uh, 
And I asked myself, like, what happened to Black literary societies in all these spaces? Although they're still here, they're still among us, but not what they used to be like in the 1800s. And I do feel like there's also the stories of, you know, it is hard to, when we got into other spaces, our spaces dissolved. Like when we integrated into schools, our schools dissolved, right? They, they went away. Or, it, you know, we also have like genius moments of our history where, you know, folks were intentionally trying to destroy it, <laughs> you yeah. know, from Black Wall Street to our magazines, our newspapers, our, our, lit, our children's literature, our companies, our businesses. It's like it was it was it started to become like policies and and environmental things that were people just make it impossible for us to even keep up and to maintain our legacies in that way. So there's a lot of different reasons that we find across history where, you know, we see this richness and genius that we come from. And then we see a lot of um, folks just intentionally trying to take that or erase it um, or forget about it. Right. But I like to know that I like to think that it's still within us, it's still among us, and we still practice it every day. And there's a lot of us, people like you and I, who who's trying to, you know, bring uh, like, re-educate and reclaim that, right? Because uh, it's still there. And so how do we just claim it for ourselves again? And that's what we're trying to do, you know, within schools and communities. That's a great um, segue into what we were going to talk about in terms of um, the framework uh, that you have um, so that you have created um, and and talking about the historically responsive literacy, liter- literacy framework. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, was that created out of a need, a problem of practice, or just a response um, to something that you saw um, of sorts? So what was the impetus for um, creating that framework? Um, It was certainly born out of like, just love and an interest of love of Black people, Black history, Blackness, Black thought. And, you know, me just like studying my love for education and studying uh, the ancestors, the a love for the ancestors. That's where it started. You know, when I looked, when I developed this model, I didn't go in saying, I'm going to look for something to help schools, help save schools, help remediate something. I was, you know, at the time, a graduate student studying for my PhD. And um, I was really interested in literacy and literacy development and, and these practices of reading and writing and thinking. And then at the same time, I was interested in what happens when we read, write and think together in like collaboration and organized spaces. And then at the same time, I was interested in blackness and black people and black history. And you know, I I took a course and I came upon this this uh, history of these African American literary societies, which started in 1828, and I I was almost like upset because I'm like, why didn't anybody teach us this back in my own K twelve education? I've been to all kind of schools. You know, growing up in Gary, Indiana, I went to schools that mostly had black children and. I'd gone to a private school one year. I'd gone to public schools with mostly white kids and never learned this history. And so I was just, 
you know, it became, I was in this sort of like archival, deep archival study where I would find one historical artifact that the ancestors wrote and it would lead me somewhere else. It would lead me. So this is how I spent like what went on to be years and days just like swimming in history, mm-hmm. learning. And I would like write poetry back to the ancestors because their language, their words were so beautiful. But very importantly, I would read this part of history and it would it would sort of like help me to be a better person, a better human, a better teacher and a better teacher leader. And I said, wow, so they were doing this. We don't even do this today in schools. They were doing that. We won't, we don't. So I was like starting to like organize everything I was reading. And I said, well, if I'm benefiting from this, maybe I can organize the ancestral knowledge that I feel like was being presented in front of me. Maybe I can organize it into a framework for teaching and learning. And maybe, you know, other educators and communities can benefit from this framework the way I was starting to. And that was maybe about 13 or so years ago. And, you know, since then, I started to I found that the ancestors had five major goals for education and learning identity, skill development, intellectualism, criticality, and joy. And so I sort of made those five pursuits as the pursuits in my life that I live by. What happens when I create pedagogy, curriculum, and instruction with these five pursuits? I would notice children come alive. I would notice teachers come alive differently, and they would achieve differently. So I started to see all these benefits. And then, um, you know, I would write about it, and I would train teachers on it. And it was sort of like me in this small space working across these pursuits for learning, right? And then I said, well, why don't I write a book about it? And, you know, that became Cultivating Genius. And teachers across the world, um, mainly in the United States, really just gravitated toward this model just as much as I did. And then that's kind of how it all really happened initially. I see it as your love letter to education. Um, yeah. You have so much passion um, behind it because I really feel what's different from uh, what you've created and juxtaposed to um, what's out there in terms of frameworks, in terms of equity. Um, I really feel like you can't put your framework in a box. I feel like what's fascinating about it is that there's this adaptability and the implementation of it. Whereas uh, you could be adopting the framework in, in so many different ways. Uh, uh, from what I understand, you could be a- adopting the framework by valuing, you know, the input of a student or just digging deeper or looking at um, student expertise and what do they bring uh, to the lesson and providing them an opportunity to expound upon um, their own learning so that the, the, so that teachers could really mm-hmm. uncover their genius. Um, so. Uh, in working with teachers to implement this uh, this framework and attaining constructive feedback about the tenets of the framework, um, I want you to summarize a little bit. What are some misconceptions um, that you've heard about the framework and how have you worked to counter those misconceptions? Sure. That's another really great question. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the way educators have picked up my framework and used it for pre-K, for high mm-hmm. school math, 
and chemistry, maker education, STEM, adult education. Somebody uses it for dating, they say. (laughs) It it has like blown my mind uh, how, like you said, it it hasn't fit in this box. But, you know, when you create something, when when you create something or put something together, you almost have to anticipate that people might take it up. Uh, and use it uh, for a different purpose or a different means than your intentions. Now, that can be good or bad. It can be like, oh, yeah, I'm actually using this to think about assessment and, um, you know, pre-K standards. And that's a good thing. Like, okay, maybe I didn't initially plan for that, but you're taking it up in a good way. But then people start to have like misconceptions and make it work for them. And some of the misconceptions is, you know, my work builds upon culturally responsive pedagogy, culturally relevant pedagogy. Uh, A lot of people say when you're teaching with my model, you're not teaching uh, the state standards or the skills. Now, even though skills is clearly one of the five pursuits and is there, they somehow have this notion that... um, if you focus on, you have to either focus on identity, criticality, joy, or skills. You cannot have it all. Now, I tell people, well, they did it all in the 1800s. Why can't we do it all today? Um, so that's one misconception. Um, another misconception is that the model is just for Black children or Brown children. We start to believe that when something is derived from Blackness, that is only for Black children. Mm. And no one ever asked people like Lucy Calkins and uh, Nell Duke and other people who have made curriculum and framework, Vygotsky, Piaget, no one said, oh, this is only for white children, the zone of proximal development, even though he did not include any kind of research or history around blackness or black education. But for some reason, people have this misconception that this idea of these five pursuits around my model is only for black children. Of course, white children need and deserve brown children need and deserve identity skills, intellect, criticality, and joy too. Um, They think that it's only for ELA. (laughs) Um, We have used this model in social studies and PE and art and STEM and math science, all these different places Um, Another misconception is that uh, criticality, the way I define criticality, I'm talking about anti-oppression across different examples and issues in society. And they think that uh, they put like they trap criticality into smallness and they say, oh, I'm doing Goldie's Muhammad's model. But each week they're only doing like environmental justice. They don't hit justice around black people or brown people or humans. They do justice around animals every week. And I'm like, okay, the purpose of criticality is not just hitting the social justice issues that you're comfortable with addressing in the classroom. It is being diverse in the issues. So some people feel comfortable like teaching about um, sexism and girl power and women's history, but not black history, black power, right. Mm -hmm. Or anti-racism. So sometimes I get that, you know, people kind of just stay in their comfort area and don't really teach the way the model was intended. Um, But those are the, those are the, probably the most common perceptions and 
again, going back to that either or dilemma, either I have to teach students how to read and do math or teach them to know themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it, sound, it sounds funny when I say it because I'm like, listen, we need to be excellent. You need to be teaching both. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I thought about action. And, and, and the way that you describe on how the, the, the framework is not, it's something that is not only implementable, but it's also actionable. Um, so, um, when I think about action, it's a great segue to talk about your, your new book, um, Unearthing Joy, mm-hmm. where you have been able to challenge educators to, you know, share how, uh, this framework has been successful in implementation. Um, so, it could be from the new book or not, but um, what are some of the success stories that you've heard or that you can share in terms of how these um, how teachers have been able to creatively implement your framework in their classrooms? Yeah, well, you know, me going to joy is the fifth pursuit that was added in the model. And I explain in the new book why joy is a fifth pursuit, why that needs to be sort of the ultimate goal of education um, Mm -hmm. and how it balances out criticality and teaching about justice and anti-oppression, right? It gives a great balance to our children. So as they're learning about oppression and how to disrupt oppression in the world, they're also learning about beauty in the world and humanity. And teachers would tell me, you know, once they start working with the five pursuits in the model, they would say they're actually surprised that it's not more time. They think that because I'm now teaching five things as opposed to one, that I need all this extra time. And we know we're not going to get extra time. So they say, well, I use my time differently to contextualize the skills Mm -hmm. into the story of identity, intellectualism, criticality, and joy. So they discover that it's not more time, but I have to use my time differently. They find that they don't have to do so much reteaching. For students who struggle to have access in math and reading, especially, they find that the other pursuits have given their children success. So as like an access way in. So if I was just teaching math skills and as a child, I struggle with math skills, I might check out. But now if you're saying, uh, you know, you're teaching a unit on slope and proportional relationships through roller coaster and you're asked the roller coasters and amusement parks. And you're asking me as a child, if I like to get on roller coasters, have I ever thought about the engineering and the design behind it? And then you're teaching me about the history of amusement parks and the segregation. You, you're almost giving me more interest and access points where I can be successful. And then you're helping me to learn proportional relationships and slopes a little differently, right? Like now I have context that is meaningful and connected to my world because so many children say, what does this have to do with my life or the world around me? And this is giving them the context and the language to understand that. Um, they're just seeing a lot of teachers also report like I have not seen engagement. I have not seen achievement, but the model has brought that within certain students. Um, so those are some of the most common narratives they report back or that I see when I collect data from my research. That, and then I, I just, um, I, w- I would ask you, um, what, what brings you joy? Um, <laughs> I, I I definitely love Black history and Black people. They bring me joy. Of course, um, my faith, my family, 
Um, curriculum writing is a big mm-hmm. part of my joy. Um, you know, uh, the singer, artist, producer, uh, Pharrell Williams wrote the foreword of the next book of Unearthing Joy. And, you know, wow. it's funny because like when he would create music and he would like sort of close his eyes, I'm just kind of watching from videos and things. Um, when he, when I would watch how he embodied some kind of sense of peace and joy, I'm like, that's how I feel when I write a lesson plan or a unit plan. <laughs> like, I love curriculum writing. I love teaching. Teaching brings me joy. Whether I'm teaching children, I, I mean, definitely children, but also adults and being around teachers, being in a space with teachers where we can build learning experiences together for children has been my ultimate form of joy, you know? So anything that is just like, that allows me to to contribute, to learn and to contribute my own gifts to the world, to make the be- the world a better place. That's very joy giving to me. Yeah, I'm just uplifted so much by um, talking to you um, already. Um, you have a unique way of lifting spirits um, because oh, of your spirit. You. Um, so, so I, I can see um, how that joy resonates um, with you and how it means something to you. Um, and going back to criticality and um, that component of the framework and how it elevates and centralizes teaching students about who they are and whose they are and where they come from so that they can, we can unapologetically promote a future of what, um, what, what anti-oppression looks like and, and what, um, yeah. And, and these um, themes of um, anti-racism. So, when when you when you talk to school leaders who are sort of at that point where they are in a position of power and they are able to say implement the framework or be open to trying it, um, but there's some apprehension because of what they believe um, might cost them their job or might cost them their title or position. Um, so. The scenario would be if they come to you, and I don't know if this has happened, or they come to you and say, Dr. Muhammad, you know, this is great. I read your book, and I I would like to implement it in my school or in my district, but I just got this position. So I'll just wait a a few more years or just give me a few more years. Let me feel everybody out a little bit, and then let's come back and do this. Um, I struggle with that because our students can't wait on our comfortability. But then at the same time, if you just got this big position and, you know, you're in a better position to take care of yourself and your family, how do you resonate with that when leaders come to you and talk to you about these um, hard choices that they have to make? Yeah, and I have to I have to keep in mind what might not be a hard choice for me may be a hard choice for them. So I also have to remove myself from it a bit and. You know, I always go back to the ancestors. They done been through everything. Whatever Mm -hmm. we are experiencing, any dilemmas, we can almost go back to um, examples Mm -hmm. of how they live their lives, the choices they made. And sometimes you will have the ancestors like James Baldwin and say, look, you got to go for broke. It's not about you and your personal feelings. It's about the betterment of communities and the children. And if you got to lose your job, you got to lose your job. Go work someplace else. There's that uh, Black narrative, right? There's another Black narrative that might say, 
let me be smarter than the rest of them. I'm going to still implement these five pursuits and say, yep, I'm giving you all the test prep. I'm still teaching the standards. Mm-hmm. And let me let me be in this position to, to weave around because a lot of people who are against this work, man, they don't read a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. It's not mm-hmm. hard to be smarter than them. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's sort of been the space I've been in for a long time in institutions mm-hmm. and schools. Uh-huh. Um, I had language. All I had to do was have strong language to sell or, as people say, sell or to communicate what I felt children needed. And I was ahead of their resistance. And when they said, oh, what about this? Oh, I already have this. And I would type and write it out. And I had it all. So I was allowed to do whatever I really wanted to do as a leader just by being smarter than folks and by Mm -hmm. doing my work and knowing my stuff and really cultivating my genius. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And then you have the group of people that's like, this is what children need, but this space is not allowing me to do it. But it's more than just allowing me to do it. This space isn't nurturing my intellect, my own criticality, my own joy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to stay in this space and maybe not implement it, but I'm going to try to move into a space that can better nurture who I am and what children need. So they might stay in the space, but maybe temporarily. Um, and then, of course, you have people who um, they got to feed their family and they're like, I can't lose this position. Um, and, you know, it ends up sort of perpetuating the sameness. Mm-hmm. And you just hope, you know, some teachers get it here and there um, because they feel like, you know, that fear. But regardless of why, what people decide to do for their own lives, their families, their children that they serve. If we know two things, if we know that we are foremost accountable to children, to the families of whom we serve, that's the most important thing to keep in mind, whatever decision is made. The second decision will be uh, made that as long as you are doing right and righteousness and putting out good humane works, good will come. Like you will be exactly where you're supposed to be. And, you know, in doing so, you don't have to do this work alone. A lot of people feel so isolated. So I tell people where you get discouraged and tired, you hire the next person you ask me and we do this together. Like, don't ever feel like you got to figure out injustice by yourself or push justice by yourself. So it's not easy because these institutions, man, they don't, some of them don't want us here. They, they make the conditions so unbearable mm-hmm. that even if we speak out and speak up for children, they'll do things to us on the sidelines to push us out and to break our spirit and our humanity. So I'm saying all this to say that it's not easy, but you have to know, as you said, Donald, who you are and whose you are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your place, you, you mm-hmm. know, your position, you may not be that kind of teacher that come popping off on day one. You might yeah. say, you know what, I'm going to listen for a year. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I did when I took on my first position as a tenure track professor. I did not talk. I didn't say nothing. I didn't push back. I saw stuff was problematic, but I didn't because I said, mm-hmm. Goldie, if you listen for a year in years two plus you can speak and know and read people and understand people so you can have a bigger impact. And that's what I chose the one year. Some places I choose to leave. I mm-hmm. also went in a school district that restrained my knowledge. 
And I chose to leave. I had the autonomy to leave and go to graduate school. So people got to figure out who they are and whose they are. And, and when you get to a point where you really know who you are, you know what to do. And keep that in mind that we are here to serve the children and the communities first. And oh, that's yeah, that's perfect. powerful. It yeah, is, because that was going to be um, my one of my questions was, the, was that that advice, you know, that you would give um, to uh, a first year teacher or even a first year um, tenure track professor. So that kind of goes into it as well. Um, so I just, you know, want to again validate your work because, um, you know, as a male of uh, color, you know, I represent 2% of the teaching base. And, um, you know, in some of my research, I talk about, you know, restoring humanity, you know, within children of color in schools. Um, so I'm actually excited to, um, I'm going to be presenting. Um, my sort of framework, um, if you will, at ASCD in, um, oh, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. It's my first time doing something like that um, and, and sharing my work with, with a bunch of people. Um, but it's personal uh, because as, as a Black male, especially as a Black male educator, I always felt like people didn't understand, like, how to handle me or what to do with me um, and what to do with my genius or my intelligence or, um, you know, and I just felt like the natural reaction of a lot of my teachers was just to, um, to now I know it's to oppress, not to cultivate that genius. So it's, it's when you say cultivating genius, that's the power in it because there's the, I think the op, maybe the, maybe the opposite of cultivation is oppression. Yeah. And, and cultivation is like a social action. Like you got to do some work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it calls for us to, to not sort of be idle with it. Right. We got to do some work, some movement in it all. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, and we should, Anytime we have the privilege and honor to teach and be in a company of other people, like we should learn about their lineage and their history and their genius. We just, you know, a lot of educators sadly rely on rhetoric or stereotypes Mm -hmm. and whether they know it or not, they are approaching and teaching children in those same ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I guess I would ask you, you know, as a scholar, um, I'm paying attention to, of course, the moves that are being made in our field. And um, I want to go a little bit, you know, earlier in terms of when we spoke about how your framework doesn't fit into this box. Um, I have paid attention to a lot of corporations, a lot of education, LLCs. Um, that have now all of a sudden taken on this work, have taken on equity work because there's capital attached to it. So mm. now yeah. it's sort of this way about seeing like all these slide decks and all these frameworks um, and things popping up. Um, and if you can get it, get get it. You know, I'm, I'm no person to say, you know, get 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 your money however you can. But I think now in many ways, we're maybe facing an inauthenticity problem mm, where absolutely you know with 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 relation to equity work so i guess in being in the work to what what extent do you kind of see that happening and do you kind of agree or disagree and how do you resonate with that 
Yeah, a lot of people, they're like, they don't really want to talk about equity or use the term until it is a profit for them Mm -hmm. financially, right? If it makes them money, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you don't need to be doing this work at all. Simply put, you do not need to be writing curriculum. If that's what you do, you do not need to be a leader, a board member, a policymaker, whoever you are. Like, this is not a for-profit thing. This Mm -hmm. is for humanity thing, (laughs) Um, you know, and a lot of people, they'll use these sensationalized terms like um, learning loss because, uh, oh, now we can create curriculum and assessment around it. And these are billion dollar industries, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's almost like they profit off of people's failure. Yeah. And, okay. and, and that's where capitalism has always put, made its mark and played its role in education. I mean, really, we should have a free curriculum from the U.S. Department of Education that helps us to get free, be free, is free. But we have never had that. Like, it's always been a profit. Even if you go into certain communities and you find that, you know, um, you know, uh, education in schools is linked to property taxes. And the more money you have, the better opportunities you have for that school, the more resources. And so we see this all the time, right? And a lot of people who are profiting are not even black and brown people. Nope. But they're profiting off of black and brown failure. Right. And so, you know, even when you look at publishing companies and facilitation and people who get contracts, you know, it's not largely going to uh, like black women and men, mm-hmm. for example, even though the country struggles to educate young black boys and girls. Right. So, you know, this has driven the United States. When you see capitalism being like a driving factor in society, you're going to see it it being a driving factor in schools. Mm. So, I mean, when as somebody who's in the work, when you when you see it happening now that you've been in it, you're not a first year sort of tenure track professor anymore. So you're not always kind of taking a step back and watching. Are you? Do you call people out? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I mean, I don't know if I did it all in like the first year, but I'm at the point where I tell the truth. I try to be more truth telling. I tell the truth, love and kindness. However, they take it up is on them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I do call it out. And because if I don't, who will, you know, or when when you have enough, whatever your position is, if you can call it out, you should. And I, I'm not saying to go back to kind of your original, your other point, right. it's not easy to tell the truth and be in a position to call it out. Yeah. But when you are, why not? Yes. But how do you, how, how do you call it out? I would ask, um, is there different ways to call it out different situations, depending on the situation, depending on the person, how do you call it out? Well, what would be the scenario? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're in, yeah. Uh-huh. What would the, what do you think? What would be the scenario? You're in a, in a room with somebody, right? Um, and they're getting equity leaders together, you know, and, and you're, you, they say, okay, you guys are out at the table, but you're seeing somebody that's espousing something that is not entirely accurate, you know, or that is not based in truth or is at its face inauthentic, right? And you all are at the table and you're sharing, say that you're on a panel, like a panel discussion or something. Mm-hmm. So is it something that you kind of, talk to them backstage about or kind of, you know, I would say it publicly because 
You know, this idea of agreement is not mm-hmm. an intellectual concept. Like debate doesn't mean that we have to agree. We mm-hmm. think that in order to be kind, we got to agree or not say anything. That you right. can still be kind and disagree and tell the truth and say, mm-hmm. no, I feel like you are wrong. And this is why, you know, mm-hmm. I have been I would call out in that I would not interrupt them unless I mean, unless it was like really like against my humanity, I have interrupted people. I've interrupted this woman who was uh, at a museum and she was she wanted me to write a curriculum for her. Mm-hmm. And peace, art piece at the art piece was like black people in chains and whips. And I had to say, I'm so sorry to cut you off. But this is breaking it like this is hurting my soul. It is hard for me to listen and and observe you. I feel like it's breaking my spirit and I need you to show some black joy. You know, like you are creating this story and it is very hard to see my people this way. And people don't understand how traumatic that is. But if we were on a panel after they were finished speaking, I would like to respond to your comment. I I wholeheartedly disagree. I think the way you are framing um, equity can be perceived as this. But when you see it as this way, you start to have more fuller. You know, I would speak to it and I would back it up with knowledge and research and experiences. And I would use my experience as a black woman to speak about it. And, you know, if it's my own people, it may be different. I would say, you know, sis, I hear what you're saying, but this is kind of what I am, what I have experienced as the other way, something to consider, you know? So it depends on the person and how they're framing it and how traumatic and harmful it feels to listen to it. Um, But, you know, People got to stop just having good intentions. That's right. not enough. Like, pick up a book and know what you should be saying and not saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, what what year does it have to be for you to know? If you're going to be on this public panel, you got to come with some public knowledge. This right. stuff has been around for decades. Right. And you're talking as if, you know, you are living in a time where there are no books and no access mm-hmm. to information. Right, right. And I think um, you sharing that is... Gives other people permission to do the same, you know, as we exercise our um, our blackness, our intelligence, because I think so many times in spaces um, we are timid in in expressing ourselves, you know, as um, not only as intellectuals, but as keepers of the knowledge, you know. Um, and so I, I just think that that's that's phenomenal. Um, the ways that you've done that and the ways that you can help others, give give others permission to do the same, I would say. So um, the, the I guess um, I would ask you, um, I have a segment here called three, two, one. So one thing I would ask you, um, well, who are your three favorite rappers or poets? It's funny as my husband is just coming through the door behind yeah. me, who's the MC. So <laughs> I have to uh, first say my first. So my favorite three rappers or poets. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. So I would first Doesn't say. Doesn't have to be in a specific order. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say him first. And he is. I was actually telling him that this morning. Um but uh, so D Jackson of 80s Babies, that's his group and name. Okay. Um, he's a hip hop artist. Um, man, uh, Langston Hughes is mm-hmm. like 
uh, I for the next book, I frame each chapter around his poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I went into like this deep dive study of him. And I just feel like, you know, like Stevie Wonder, you can listen to a new song for the first time and it just makes you feel like, wow, the first time I'm hearing mm-hmm. something. I feel that about Langston Hughes poetry. It could be all these years of reading his works and I'll discover a new poem. And it just feels like, wow, how am I still discovering newness from him? Um, so that would be my, um, second. And Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, there's so many, I mean, it's just hard, but I, I, my, my best friend, uh, Dr. Yolanda C. Lee Ruiz is a poet Mm -hmm. and a writer, a literary writer. Mm -hmm. And she, she writes about love and justice and peace. She's one of my favorite poets. Um, Like I go through her work again and again, you know, Mm -hmm. if I, if I'm feeling sad or happy, I go to her work and, um, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I think would be, I mean, I know I that's number four, so I'll stop, but (laughs) (laughs) more so like from a historical perspective and a historical writer, I would also say him, I, I love reading his work and, um, from his letters to his poetry and everything he's written. Wow. Okay. So um, you kind of said it, but you don't have to use her book, but your two favorite books. Oh, um, um, already Other than your own, did I say my book? Oh, Other no, I'm not going to say my book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, you know, uh, the Quran is always going to be my favorite book. Yes. <laughs> I'm yes. not just saying that because I should say it, mm-hmm. but you know, when I am sad or upset, I mean, I just feel like when I read it, it just gives me such a calm and such a joy and just makes me feel like everything is better. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, their eyes are watching God. Like yes. that was like yes. my forever favorite book. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I like a lot of autobiographies, like Long Walk to Freedom. Um with Nelson Mandela, that was also like maybe high uh, high school, college favorite read. Um, so yeah, I don't know, yeah. it's so many. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, your favorite song and why? My favorite song. Oh, and also with books like anything, Bell Hooks writes about love. Oh, yeah. Those are kind of my go-to. Mm-hmm. My favorite song of all time is um, Make Me Say It Again, mm-hmm. Girl, which was originally sang by the Isley Brothers. And then Stokely from Mid Condition made a, a remix of it. And then now Beyonce with the Isley Brothers has a version. Have you heard that one or no? Oh, that song is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but my favorite is actually Stokely's version. Mm-hmm. I would say that's my favorite song of all time including um, the song Summer Soft by Stevie Wonder. Oh, that's amazing. So let me ask you, um, think back to your first year of teaching, Uh, um, you know, first day in the classroom, you know, first class. Mm. What would you, what would you tell that first year teacher now? Um. Uh, I, I would actually like really commend her <laughs> and celebrate her. I mean, 
in many ways, like my first year was like my best year. I love my energy. I love my excitement. I love, and I still have those things, but you know, I would ask her like, how did you know to be like this and do all those things? There were things that I felt like I just did. And I don't know how I knew to do them. Um, I would just tell her to just be confident and be like, be fully embodied with what you're feeling and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, so many parts of myself reminds me of like the Abbott Elementary main character, <laughs> the teacher, how she's just super happy and joyful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like so many people try to su- suppress that first teacher joy right. because maybe they have been in the field. They're like a little tired, a little weary, mm-hmm. but like retain that joy and keep it. And in many ways, I did that and keep striving, keep developing ideas and um, and know that, you know, you have something special to continue to give to this world. Cause you know, we didn't, I didn't have the best, all the confidence in the world, um, back then. I don't know if I have it now, but I de- definitely have more now. So I would try to build up her confidence for sure. Awesome. Awesome. So last question is if you could wave your magic wand in education and anything could happen just by you waving your magic wand. What would you change in education? I would change a lot. I would, I would change um, how education is structured. Yeah. Um, I would first change, um, you know, how teachers are prepared to be teachers. I would change our school schedules. I would make sure that teachers uh, are are sort of prepared to be teachers to be scholars of their discipline. And that they teach in less time, but they plan and prep for their genius in more time. <laughs> I would definitely pay teachers, uh, prepare them differently and pay them more um, once we prepare them in a stronger way. Um, I would change how schools are funded so that mm-hmm. there was more equity around the country um, and how, you know, we cannot have such a rich country, but such a poor school system. Mm. So there was a lot economically and financially and resource wise, I would change. I would make sure people study more literacy when they were becoming teachers. I would um, make sure that spaces, all schools had spaces where it was inviting to come into and they had better related curriculum, that they were studying curriculum with my model. If I had a magic wand, I would change the standards, the state assessments, how we would assess joy and identity and all these other things and not just reading the math levels. I would make sure we focus on the joy of teachers so that they come back and and stay and that they are the brightest and most conscious among us. And, you know, where everyone would have a stake in education and things like, you know, anti-racism and criticality and justice are not this add-on, but it is the way we educate every child. And there's no laws and policy that says we cannot teach it or teach about Black brilliance or Black excellence. So, yeah, I mean, and I think we have the power to do all those things. (laughs) I don't think that's just like imagination that stays in one's mind. I think like this country has the power to change all of that and more. And you're and you're doing it and 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 I just as the title of this podcast is um we see you. You know, we see you um Goldie, you know, we see you teacher. Um mm-hmm. we we honor you, you know, in the work that you do. 
um, we celebrate you and we appreciate you. And, um, you know, I just want you to know that you are an inspiration to many, uh, including myself. So, again, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. We see you, teacher. Thank you. What a beautiful name.